You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, your host, and with me today is Dr. Alan Pack. He's Chief of the Division of Sleep Medicine and Director of the Center for Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Dr. Pack, welcome to our program. Oh, thank you. Today we are going to explore aspects on the science of sleep. Sleep is obviously universal and essential, and as most physicians will grudgingly admit, it's an almost complete mystery to us still. Dr. Pack, could you talk with us about your work on the molecular basis for sleep and about sleepiness in general? Yeah, I mean, clearly, as you indicate, one of the major questions of biology is, you know, what controls sleep and what are the functions of sleep? And now we have the ways to really directly address these questions because we have the molecular tools and we have the model systems. We've now recognized in the last few years that sleep not only exists in mammals but exists in fruit flies, Drosophila, which is a very powerful model to really understand the molecular basis of behavior. And we and others are exploiting these tools to really try and understand the molecular basis of sleepiness. You know, when you become very sleepy, you know, what changes in your brain to make you sleepy? And these studies are really identifying a number of pathways that we think are very relevant to this process. One of the concepts is that when you're awake for a significant period of time, what happens is you begin to deplete energy stores in the brain. So your ATP, which is the major molecule for energy, starts to decline and then in turn leads to a signal for sleep. And we and others are looking at some of the changes that take place in that system. It's not only, however, energy, because in addition to that, what you find is if you keep mice awake for about six hours, what you find is you get a response, which is called the unfolded protein response. And this is a situation where you can't manufacture your proteins normally and they get misfolded and you respond to that. So what that's telling you is that prolonged wakefulness, in this case not particularly prolonged, really leads to an insult to the brain in terms of this unfolded protein response. And so what happens is you stop making proteins, and again, we think that's a signal that subsequently leads to sleep. And then during sleep, which is a recovery process, you recover these systems and you start making proteins again and you're ready for the new day type of thing. So there clearly are very profound changes taking place in the brain as you extend weight from us. And clearly these studies, which are both being done in Drosophila and mice, are really identifying some of the key pathways that are involved. Dr. Pack, tell us a little bit more about these unfolded proteins. Well, I mean, basically the unfolded protein response is a very general phenomenon. So that it's not just specific to certain proteins. Basically, there's a machinery where when you make proteins, you properly fold them so they can, you know, do their proper function. And if you're either, uh, you don't have a sufficient energy to fold the proteins or there's alteration in calcium stores and, and cells, what happens is you don't fold these proteins properly. And then if that is allowed to continue, then these misfolded proteins can aggregate together and can be damaging to the cell. So as a result, the brain or cells really want to respond to that, and there's a very strong protective mechanism involved. And what happens is that you upregulate a so-called molecular chaperone, and when that's upregulated, what it tries to do is it tries to fold these proteins properly. If it can't do that, then it takes them out for degradation. And in addition, the other part of the unfolded protein response is you, in fact, reduce protein translation. So you stop making proteins, essentially. So you shut down the number of proteins you're making, 
and then you're trying to fold the ones that are already there that are misfolded. So there's a very profound system to basically respond to that challenge, and I think it's interesting. You know, we know that, that this unfolded protein response occurs when you're hypoxic or you get glucose depletion. And what our group has shown is even after six hours of wakefulness in mice, you really get that response taking place, which indicates that, you know, prolonged wakefulness is really an insult to the brain. And you really try to respond to that and, and protect yourself from that insult. So other than hypoxia or depletion of glucose, are there other situations in which the energy reserves of the brain are depleted? Well, there are other ways that the energy stores in the brain are depleted. I would say there's hypoxia, as we just talked about, and ischemia would be another way that that would clearly occur. And there are mechanisms, and again, we know that this changes with sleep. There are mechanisms that the brain has to sense, or cells have to sense their energy, and they respond to that. And one of the ways they respond to that is through a molecule called AMP-dependent kinase that is activated, it's phosphorylated and activated when the ATP-AMP ratio changes. And again, what we've shown in our group is after three hours away from this in mice, you see activation of that particular enzyme. So there are mechanisms in place to try and respond to this energy depletion and try to, for example, increase the supply of glucose by upregulating glucose transporters and at the same time trying to shut down energy-dependent processes like protein production and lipid production. And, and we believe that these are also occurring as you extend wakefulness. Dr. Pack, I take it the impact of disrupted sleep can be quite profound, not just in the sensation of sleepiness, but for overall brain health and function. Yeah, that's what we believe. And as I said, these things occur in mice with relatively short periods of wakefulness, you know, three or six hours. But remember, mice don't have long, long consolidated periods away from this, and it may well be in humans, it takes us longer before we get these particular responses taking place. What we know in humans is that humans can sustain weight from the sort of 16 hours. And once you go beyond that, you really start to see decrements in performance. And the longer you go, the worse the performance becomes. So there clearly is a mechanism in human brain that allows you to sustain weight from this for a certain time. But when you push beyond that, as you indicate, then you really get deteriorations in brain function. And we think that the mechanisms we're talking about that we're elucidating in mice are the mechanisms that will be responsive for that in humans. As an aside for our physician listeners, especially our residents out there, this really brings those familiar 24 to 36-hour days into focus for debate. Is it imaginable that with this new evidence in hand, the 24-hour medical days are for all intents and purposes over? I don't know if they're over, but you've got essentially this area where there's a on the one hand, you want to let people sleep, but on the other hand, you know, somebody has to be taking care of patients, and so you've got this thing that you have to resolve. But I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, losing sleep is not innocuous. We just talked about some of the consequences in brain, and what we also know is that if you reduce people's sleep, let's say, to four hours a day for seven days in a row, you get very specific changes in metabolism that really increase your appetite and so on, and we think that that may be, in fact, a risk factor for subsequent obesity. So it's very clear that losing sleep is not an innocuous thing. There are consequences for brain and we believe other organ systems. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Alan Pack, Chief of the Division of Sleep Medicine and Director of the Center for Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. We've been talking about the science of sleep, 
Are there any studies out there that look at the results of sleep deprivation on the physician's performance? Yeah, there's a number of studies out there that look at performance of physicians in relationship to reduced sleep durations. And there's studies in, in simulators showing impaired performance. And perhaps the most important data are the two recent studies that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine from the Harvard group. What they did is they compared people on the long schedules, you know, working more than 24 hours to people now in the 80-hour week where you didn't get as many long schedules. And what they found were two things. First of all, they found on the very long schedules, people working more than 24 hours, there was an increased number of errors. They actually had somebody going around with the residents and watching what they were doing. And so there was an increased number of medical errors, in particular relation to pharmacological errors, you know, wrong doses and that type of thing. And so there were a number of serious errors related to sleep deprivation. They did not allow these errors to take place because somebody was obviously watching them. But they documented short sleep gives you increased medical errors. The second thing they showed, and this was in a nationwide registry study, is they showed the short sleep durations, people who, again, had these long shifts, that they had increased car crashes. Because one of the areas where you're particularly vulnerable if you're sleepy is to have a microsleep when you're driving because, you know, maintaining wakefulness is very unstable and you can fall asleep. And the major consequence of that is, is these car crashes. And so they showed the short sleep duration, people on extended work shifts actually had increased car crashes as well. So the two consequences that were demonstrated in residents were medical errors and increased car crashes. And are there any data to show the effects on overall health of patients with prolonged sleep deprivation, such as sleep apnea? Yeah, I mean, there's growing data about the impact of, for example, sleep apnea, which is an extremely common condition, not only in sleepiness, but also in other conditions. And the data is increasingly showing that sleep apnea is an independent risk factor for insulin resistance and therefore diabetes. And there's some data to suggest that if you identify sleep apnea in obese type 2 diabetics and you treat the sleep apnea, you will, in fact, improve glucose control. The second area, and there's no question of this, is that sleep apnea is an independent risk factor for hypertension. And in randomized clinical trials comparing the treatment, which is CPAP, the mask you wear, the continuous positive airway pressure against a placebo mask or a sham mask, you see significant reductions in blood pressure in people on the CPAP arm compared to the placebo arm. And thirdly, there is data, particularly recently from Spain, showing that if untreated severe sleep apnea over a 10-year period is associated with an increased number of cardiovascular events, you know, myocardial infarctions and stroke and so on, and also an increased number of, of cardiovascular deaths. So the main consequences are not only sleepiness, but appear to be insulin resistance, hypertension, and the third is cardiovascular events. Now, once the treating physician identifies the patient with daytime sleepiness, what else should he be looking for? If you see somebody with excessive daytime sleepiness, uh, the key thing to think about is what is the differential. First is chronic short sleep durations, so questions about how long they're sleeping, and if they're really, really short, then increasing their sleep duration before getting referral would be a reasonable thing. The second thing is there's a common condition called restless leg syndrome where you get these sensations in your leg which come on just before you go to sleep and you have to move your legs and so on. That's a diagnosis made in history. And then you've got obstructive sleep apnea, narcolepsy, and then some rarer disorders. 
if you suspect there's obstructive sleep apnea or narcolepsy, then you need to get relevant studies to support that diagnosis and to evaluate it. And in general, that would be referral to a sleep center. For obstructive sleep apnea, you basically are doing an overnight study where they're sleeping with a number of leads connected and you're measuring EEG, you're measuring oxygen level, you're measuring breathing, and you're trying to see how many of these episodes of breathing cessations or breathing declines with falls in oxygen and wakening up in the EEG are occurring across the night and you can measure them and characterize the severity of sleep apnea. For narcolepsy, the key test is a multiple sleep latency test, which is done during the day where you ask people to fall asleep four times at two-hour intervals in these naps. And what happens in narcolepsy is you would go into dream sleep, rapid eye movement sleep during these naps. So for sleep apnea, the key piece is the nighttime study. For narcolepsy, it's the multiple sleep latency test. I want to thank Dr. Alan Pack, who's been our guest. And we've been talking about the science of sleep. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, your host. And you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.